exactly what the sound guy told me not to do. And I muted my mic. Sorry. Hey, I'm so glad you're here this morning. Um, <clears throat> we will actually, excuse me, <clears throat> get that out of there. We'll actually be in about four chapters this morning. Here's what I promise you. I'm not going to read all four. So, but we will be in uh, starting in chapter 25. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Exodus 25, that'll help you get started. Um, Exodus, again, is this great book that reminds us that God wants to dwell with his people. And so when we read this book, we have to read it under the lens and the thought process that we have a God who wants to dwell with his people. Um, <clears throat> the thoroughness of this as well is we see that in Christ when he talks about a word, a Greek word called ekklesia. Now that makes me sound really famous and popular. Well, whatever. Makes me sound well-versed. But the ecclesia is a popular term. Sometimes even churches use it as gathering. What it actually refers to is a secular term that just been an assembly, an assembling of people. But Christ said, I wanted to make an ecclesia of Christ, meaning a gathering of Christ followers. And so what we're going to read today is very much how God wants to set the tone for the future. And that's what he consistently and persistently does all throughout Scripture, is he wants to set the tone for the future, helping people understand that he's a God who wants to dwell among us, but he's a God who loves us, but he's also a God who is holy and righteous and good. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to see that. But here's what we have to realize. We're not perfect, right? In fact, some of you are in this room and you know that already and you're like, yay, amen. I'm not the only one here that's not perfect. And that's good. I'm not perfect. In fact, I wear glasses, right? You see that already. That means the perfection of my eyes is not 20-20, although I wish it were. I have not been able to see since I was in the first grade and my teachers put me in the front row, which was very depressing, right? Because once you're in the front row, you're that kid. Nobody wants to be that kid. For some of you, there's been years on your shoulders where now you can't probably lift, which you used to lift, guys, right? When we were used to be in the weight room, you can't actually lift those pounds that you used to lift, or you can't run that distance you used to run. Every one of us deals with something that's kind of confined us. But imagine if God said one day, hey, I'm going to give you all those talents you used to have back. And that, Mike, you're going to have perfect eyesight, which here's my thought, and I don't know if this is true, but I kind of want to believe it. I think if I had perfect eyesight and perfect lungs, I'd be in the NFL right now. Well, retiring this year, just this year. I'd be Brett Favre. Um, just a better Brett. It's maybe a high opinion of myself. But I'm, I'm six foot four, and all my friends used to joke with me, like, why can you not dunk? And I never could. I never had the capability of jumping and leaping and that sort of thing. My, my track coach tried to make me a high jumper. Did not work out. Three meets, no jumps. But what if I had that gifting? What if you had that gifting? What if you had that back? You would live a different existence, wouldn't you? You and I both would. I would look through not a new lens, meaning glasses, but a new lens, a new way of thinking, a new way of seeing the world because I would be changed. 
Now, here's the deal for you that have been involved in the church for quite some time. You were changed at the moment that Christ came into your life. You brought imperfection forward, and yet he turned your life towards him and began to build from the inside out something that would be perfected over time, or we use this word called sanctified. And so he's been developing and growing and maturing you into an understanding of who he is, but also who you are as a result of Christ in you. And because of that, changed people do what? They live changed lives. Now the story with the Exodus is this, that every one of those folks that are part of the family of Israel, right? It's all descending from one family and then it's become this huge nation, or at least but about to become a huge nation, of people wandering the wilderness. They've seen some pretty impressive stuff from God himself. And they've been delivered people. See, I think this, that delivered people operate as delivered people. They see the world through new eyes and new view. Because they're no longer slaves like they were in Egypt, which is where they came from. But they've come out of their slavery into this new life where God is dwelling directly with them. And as they're moving out of that, they're coming through, they're coming through the, the seas and the seas are parting and they're seeing this and they're seeing the provision of manna from heaven and they're seeing the provision of water and nourishment and they're seeing a pillar of fire on a mountain. They're seeing these amazing things. You would expect amazing change, right? And that's how we should live is with the perspective that God is this amazing God that's done an amazing change in our lives. And we should be delivered people and look like we're delivered. But as you and I both know, that's not often the case. And we'll actually see that next week. But God cares so much about us living in this new reality that there's a relationship with him that he articulates that new reality all through scripture. And so over the past few weeks, we've seen that God's been dwelling on the mountain. And he's been dwelling kind of at a distance from his people. Not because he doesn't want to be with his people, but it's to profoundly explain his holiness, his purity. We sing holy, holy, holy. That's one of the few words that's repeated three times over and over again in Scripture. Repetitive. All his other attributes are described just in one word, like he's a God of love. He's a God that's good, but holy, 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 he is professed very different in Scripture. And there's a profound understanding because he is a God who is set apart. He's the only God. He's the God that created the universe, the heavens, the earth, everything in it. He created everything down to the atom all the way up to the planet Saturn. Like, that's how big God is. And so when we understand that perspective, it's got to change our mindset. And that's what they've seen. And so he wants to not only dwell on the mountain, but now he wants to have them create a tabernacle for him to dwell among his people. A place in which he can be with them constantly. And so today we're going to look at some of the instruction that's given 
to Moses about building this tabernacle and how they are to build it and why they are to build it in this certain way that they're building it. So if you'll turn with me, we'll be in chapter 25, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skin, uh, goat skin, acacia wood, oil from the, for the lamps, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, oil from the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, oxen stones and stones for setting for the uh, <coughs> one of those days, guys. Sorry, <coughs> uh, and for breast uh, recipes. If I can get a water, if anyone doesn't mind grabbing one, I'm sorry, guys. <coughs> and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Thank you. Oh, even a throw lozenge. Look at that. All right, awesome. Man. Or is this the mint? Can you smell me all the way back there? <clears throat> all right. Honey mint. That's it. That's it. All right. Let me pray for a second here. <laughs> Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Everything that we've read that leads into what you are designing be clearly understood. God, may you be profoundly heard in this moment. The God, you are the God who desires to dwell, but you are also the God who desires to deliver. And we are delivered people if we are in Christ. And we have delivered lives. And that should show us how to live just a bit differently. So help us today, God, to live just a bit differently. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Roman number one. Everything God designs is intended to point back to him, back to the value of God and the value of our relationship with God. Now think about that for a second while I take a swig of water. God wants to dwell among his people. And so when he begins to design the temple, he designs that, teaching them and helping them understand more of who he is. Now, one of the brilliant parts that he does first in the temple is he doesn't have them build the four walls right away. In fact, he does it a little bit differently. God was no longer dwelling on the mountain, but creating a way for him to dwell among the people. The tabernacle. The tabernacle actually means dwelling in Greek. Was God's design to represent the presence of God among the people. Letter A, God's holy. So God introduces Moses not to start with the tent. We see this later on in the scriptures. But he says, I want you to start with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant will sit in the center of the temple. 
meaning that God is working from the inside out. See that picture? This is how your God works. He starts to work by renewing your mind. You ever heard that verse? Do not be conformed by the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Ezekiel, he actually says, I'm going to give you a new heart, not a hardened heart, but I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that's pliable to my spirit. Right? So he's giving a new heart, and he's going to work from the inside out. And so when we watch and see what God does in Scripture, he's always doing it as an example to us of how he works. And so when we read this, we realize he wants to dwell with us, but he wants to work from the inside out. So God started with the ark uh, and to build in this structure. Now he uses a particular wood, which I found this really interesting, acacia wood. It grows in the desert. Nothing grows in the desert, right? It needs very little water, but it's the most solid wood that grows in the desert. And they build that and they cover that with gold. And they cover it with gold as a protective covering for it to last even longer. But it's also symbolic because gold is purified, right? It's got a purity to it. And it's to demonstrate the purity of who God is. And so when they build this, they build that, when the, that in mind. Ultimately, God is wanting to purify this temple first. He's wanting to make it a place that's holy, that's set apart for both the relationship and the worship of God. And so by setting it apart, he's setting a reminder that he wants, us, he wants his people to become a holy people dependent on him. Not because he's arrogant, but because he is good. Because he's good, he wants them to have something solid to stand on, something solid to kneel before, something that they can rely on because the rest of the world has been corrupted by sin, including themselves. And if they were to lean into themselves or they were to be back in Egypt and to lean into Pharaoh, it'd make no sense whatsoever. Because Pharaoh was flawed, we are flawed, the earth is flawed because sin entered the world and the wage of that sin is death. And so everything is broken and corrupted except for God, who is perfect and righteous and good and holy. And so I remember the verse in 1 Peter, maybe you've heard this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of, the former, of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, which he's quoting Isaiah. He's building this temple to build about not only his presence among them, but to build holiness within the camp of Israel. So they'll understand the value of who he is, and that they'll see that they're a set-apart nation for his purpose. And so when we look at this passage, we have to have that in mind. We also see that he's merciful. We'll talk about the mercy seat. The mercy seat sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant. 
The mercy seat is a representation. It's got two cherubim, right? There are these two angels with long wings. There's a few depictions out there of what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. And the mercy seat's just the flat surface representing the merciful God that he is. So God is merciful, whether it be. And that mercy sits in between the earth, right, and the flaws of the world. And in, in that mercy is the law. This is where they put the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments were never intended to be a condition of God's love. It was meant to be a confirmation of God's love. That gentle reminder that, hey guys, here are the areas you can mess up and we don't want that for your life. Imperfection is not what I've called you to. I've called you to be holy. So I set my mercy on top of it to cover it to both remind you it's concealed with me, but it's also protected. And so when we look at this example and the building of the ark, we have to consider that he set the mercy or set mercy between this item. But within the, uh, <clears throat> within the ark are a couple of other items. There's a staff. You may remember this of the story of Aaron where the staff bloomed and flowers came out of it even though it wasn't attached to the ground. It was a reminder that because it bloomed, it was connection that Aaron was meant to be the priest. No other, they put several staff out during this occasion and they all wanted to debate who had the power or who had the priestly you know, freedom to do what they wanted and only one bloomed and it was Aaron's staff. And it was a reminder that he protects that office. And he protects it on purpose. Is that office is the connection and the service to the people from God. And so they laid that staff in there as well. The other thing that was in there is, is a reserve of manna that's never to be used. But it's a reminder that God provides. So not only does he provide someone to be an intercessor between as a priest, but he provides the manna that provides the nourishment. Now, let me walk you through the temple. The temple was to be built like this. There was only one way in. Sound familiar? You could only get one way through the temple. <clears throat> you walk through the temple, and the next thing you would see is this altar of sacrifice. It was just kind of looked like a big pit covered by walls. It was meant to be where the sacrifices would have been laid. Now, there were two types of sacrifices, right? There was a sacrifice of uh, the atonement. Not two types. There were two uh, presented sacrifices. There were two goats. One was called a scapegoat. You probably heard that, right? And the other one was meant to be the goat that would be used for the atonement or the sacrifice. A scapegoat was actually placed on his head a, a note that said scapegoat and they'd wander him out into the world and they'd let him go to die in the world whereas the other goat would be sacrificed it would be cut and blood would be spilled and they would sacrifice it on the altar and that was an example of the the relationship that God wanted with his people to sacrifice on behalf of their sins they'd take the blood and they'd actually carry the blood through the next phase of the process. After the altar, 
they would go to the labyrinth, which was this kind of bronze, almost like a bowl that kind of sat up. It almost looked like a bird feeder, okay? You ever seen those old bird feeders where they've got the water in them? And they would take from that, and they'd pour on their feet, they'd pour on their hands to purify themselves spiritually. And then they'd walk through what was the temple curtains. And so the temple kind of had like a flat top, came down the sides. I don't know if we, there's the picture. Okay, you can see it there. I forgot we had that. And you'd walk in and you'd see a few things in there. You'd see three specific things. You'd see the menorah that was gold. And then you would see the uh, bread of sh uh, showbread on one side. And it was typically on like a stand. And then you would see the altar with the incense. And all of those symbolized something. One of them symbolized, the menorah symbolized the purity, but also the light of God, right? You remember those verses that you've always heard? Be a light to your path. He's the light of the world. And then you had the bread, right? The bread of life we hear from Jesus. And it was to remind them that God is light to your path. Bread is the nourishment you need. He's the provider of what you need. Then you would have the stand that had the incense burning. And the symbol of the stand was to remind you that you have somewhere you can pray to your Heavenly Father before you, someone would enter the Holy of Holies. In fact, it was you pray before the veil. The veil covered up the Holy of Holies. And there were two cherubims that sat on that, that were embroidered on that veil. And so you wouldn't go in there. That was usually the priest that would go on your behalf to intercess on your behalf for your sin. That's where they would take the blood and they would walk back there and they would sprinkle the blood. And they sprinkled the blood on the what? The mercy seat. You see the picture? They began to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat because the mercy seat stood between us and the law. See, the law calls us to a consequence, right? But because of God's mercy, because of his, his grace, and because he allows us to spill in front of him our sin, he gives about a transformative holiness that we don't deserve. He's the intercessor. He's the go-between. In fact, it says this in uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest. Remember, the priest goes in to intercess on behalf of Israel. Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the picture. There's only one way to God. 
And when we get to God, when we get through that one wing, we see that there was a sacrifice made on our behalf. Because we, unfortunately, are unpure. We bring nothing to the table when it comes to God. And so a sacrifice was needed to be made on our behalf. That sacrifice was Christ. And what he does is we don't purify ourselves. We go to the labyrinth and he purifies us. He pours, he lavishes on us his purity. And then not only that, you can remember this from Matthew 6, but he provides exactly what we need when we enter into the temple. When we enter into the temple, we can have nourishment, we can have a light into our path, we can have direct connection to God through prayer. And here's the brilliance. There used to be this curtain, right, that broke up that part between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. The Holy Place was the first portion where the the lathering or the uh the light and the bread and the incense were but at some point remember this point when christ died on the cross that curtain fell in the temple in israel giving mankind access to the holy of holies only through christ's covering so that we can have access to god forever our heavenly father because he put in front of us the sacrifice of Christ who fell on a cross on our behalf, died for both justice and mercy, was buried and rose bodily again. It was the only one to do that. And therefore, we can have life if we will recognize that we are sinners and repent, turn physically from that mindset and look towards the goodness of God through Christ Jesus. And begin to believe that not only is he our savior, but he gets to be our Lord, our authority. We don't come to him perfect. But he will bring about perfection through us. But it's only by him and through him that that can take place. And then in doing so, what happens next? Right? We repent, we believe, and we get to receive the relationship with God through Christ Jesus. Congratulations. You all just heard the gospel. You get to take it home with you. But that's what he's all about. So when he shapes the temple and the way he shapes the temple, he does it with purpose and he does it with a reminder of hope for each and every one of you. That today you get to leave here and you don't have to wander through the process because Christ did that process for you. You get to find hope and life and joy and truth through and by him alone. So there's nothing you can do. Isn't that great? Because we would mess it up, but there's nothing you can do, but he will get you through that process and bring you out on the other side with life. That is what the temple symbolizes. Isn't it cool that from day one, when God looked at Adam and Eve after they had sinned, he says, I've got a plan. This is not a shock. I'm not in awe. I know exactly what I'm going to do next. And then through the process of them going even into 
bringing about all the generations up to Israel and then Israel going into Egypt and being pulled out of slavery as an example of us being pulled out of slavery of sin into life with God, promised to a land that was not our own but was his that he had sanctioned for his people. This is what our God does for us. You who are in Christ are delivered people. So live delivered lives. So every day you leave this room, you go out leaving this room, bringing about the joy of Christ to others so they might find hope that they might be living a delivered life. Realize what you have in Christ. You no longer have to go through this long, arduous process, but the purity of Christ has given you hope that you can share with others. Your delivered people live a delivered life. This is what the story of Exodus is really all about. Yes, there's more nuances. There's brilliance in all the story. But this is what it's about. Bringing about the gospel before we even know what the gospel is in the New Testament. Such a good story. In chapter 29, I'm jumping a little bit. Because there is a lot here. And I encourage you, go back, read these passages he goes into the description of the priestly garments and what they were to wear and how it symbolized the relationship that God had with his people as the names of the tribes were written on the chest of the priest because he was intercessing on their behalf. But I love this in verse 29 because he asked them to make a sacrifice. Now, when they describe this sacrifice, it sounds really disgusting, to be honest with you. And they bring that sacrifice in, uh, you see this in 29, verse uh, 15 through 18, if you want to read there. But they bring that sacrifice, and they're given specific instructions about every little portion of that poor sacrificial lamb's body, goat's body. And they place it on the altar to be burned. Now, I can't imagine that smelling good. But you know what it says at the end of verse 18? It was a good aroma. Worthy of God's praise. It was a good aroma, worthy of God's praise. The rest of us not would not have chosen that at all. I cannot imagine that. You would have burned apple cider, apple cider candles, right? None of us would have picked this. But God does. Why? He does it because he values the surrender of our lives, realizing that the only thing we have, the only hope we have is him. See, we want to worship in the way that pleases us most often, right? But worship is surrendering our valuables for a God who is priceless. A gentleman by the name of Vodi Bauckham, I don't know if you guys know him, but uh, he writes this. <clears throat> Our response to worship is not about how Jesus makes me feel. Our worship is a response to Jesus' worth regardless of how I feel. We may not like the aroma. doesn't matter. It's what we're doing for God, what he is requesting. Now, some of you guys had early fathers and if your dad asked you to do anything, you would do it because he was such a good dad. For some of you, you did not have that situation. 
that this is a good God who wants to be your heavenly father, who's brought about a good situation, who's brought about hope. And here's the deal. Sometimes you come to worship and you're wondering one of two things, right? Oh, what are they singing today? Will I like it? Will I not like it? Will it be that one guy that can't sing real good? Will it be the other guy that sings really good that I really like? We come in with our expectations of worship. Oh, who's preaching today? Mm, is it Nathan or Mike? I like Nathan better. Right? And suddenly it becomes about us. And we start to make church about us. Church is not about you. Church is not about me. It's not about my privilege. It's not about my expectations of desiring so deeply to preach. It's actually about my expectations of what can I do to edify the worthiness of Christ. And so if we're here to edify the worthiness of Christ, then when we show up, we show up because we want to be unified together in demonstrating the worthiness of Christ. We don't come to church with expectation of, of what we get out of it. We come to church with expectation of what we get to give to it. What we get to release from us to God for his sake and his purpose. That's why if you come to church and you serve in the kids ministry, you don't hear the message. I don't care. You have worshiped God. You have shown up. You have served. If you're in the back being security one day, you're worshiping God. Here's where we unify. Here's where we come together. Here's where we build up the bonds of peace, as Ephesians 4 says. Here's where we equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Here's where sometimes you're equipped to do the work of the ministry. This is not about us. It is about how we can respond to the worthiness of Christ. And so when we do that, we have to take this in mind. Luke 9, 23, I love this passage. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now here's the deal. It's kind of a catch-22. None of you could deny yourself and take up your cross daily without Christ. He was the only one worthy and capable of doing that. But the challenge for us today is today we probably need to deny ourselves from time to time about, hey, you know what? I don't care which worship leader's up there. I don't care which pastor's preaching this morning. I'm going to be in the room. I don't care who's showing up at work tomorrow. I'm going to be Christ. I don't care what attitudes are coming out tomorrow. I'm going to be Christ at my job. I don't care how my neighbor feels. I'm going to be Christ to him or her. I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be holy as my heavenly father is holy. See, ultimately, 2 Corinthians says this, that we're to be the aroma of Christ. In fact, it refers to him as we are to be an aroma of God, the fragrance of life. Who's life? Right? I'm the way, the truth, and the aroma of Christ. Christ's life in us. And if we'll be the aroma of Christ's life in us, there's so much that we can do together. 
See, that's, that's what's pleasing to God. Is that when we exude the things of God, the love, joy, peace, kindness, self-control, we practice those things. Even the law can't restrict you from them. You read that in Galatians 5. But the joy here is that we get to be the aroma, the fragrance of life. Roman numeral 3. God is, was, and what always will be. Exodus 29, 45 through 46. I will dwell among my people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall, they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. What's he say? I am the Lord, their God. How many times does he say, I am their God? A lot. <laughs> How many times would we love for God to come to us and say, I'm your God? Take you by individual name. Mike, I'm your God. Devin, I'm your God. Bethany, I'm your God. Luke, I'm your God. That's not me. That's God, by the way. Just an example. <laughs> Look for lightning. Wouldn't that be the most comforting thing in the world to hear at this point? And yet still one of the scariest? <laughs> because God is both all-powerful and all-knowing, but all-loving. He will uphold our goodness and righteousness, sometimes even when we don't. Now, he'll call us out of unrighteousness, that's for sure. But he is a good God, and he is the Lord our God, and he is going to be your Lord your God, if you believe in Christ, not just today, not just yesterday, but for eternity. And so God is a God of his people. He's a God of deliverance. At the end of the day, guys, that's, that's what you need to know. That God's the God of deliverance. He's brought them out of the land, and he's chosen to dwell among them. Like we talked about last week, and this is almost a reiteration, but it's a reiteration because next week's where the crisis comes into play, where the entire camp goes backwards a few steps. And we have to remember this, and sometimes we have to repeat it two weeks in a row, maybe even five weeks in a row, that God is the God who decides all things that we need to lean into and not make decisions for ourselves. We don't need to begin to craft idols that allow us to think, oh, he's some sort of thing. No, God is the God of the universe. He is incomparable. He's unequal. And if we'll realize that, there's no image that could ever bear the gravity of his likeness. And so when we look at this picture, we remember we're delivered people because we need to operate delivered because it's so quick that we can craft something in our own image to make ourselves feel more comfortable. If you can't grasp the image of God, that's good. What you can grasp is the character of God in your life, living it out and operating like delivered people. Delivered people operate delivered. My challenge to you guys today is when you leave this building, Live as though God has delivered you from the gap of sin. Liber 
live as though he has removed things from your life that give you hope, as though you were blind and now you can see. Because the God of mercy who sits between the law that you deserve to pay the penalty for sits in between it so that you can have salvation. And so tomorrow, be delivered people. Today, when you go to the local restaurant or you go home and are with your family, be a delivered person. When you go to the grocery store tomorrow and you're all out of eggs and somebody else was supposed to pick up those eggs, act like a delivered person tomorrow in front of that cashier. When something goes a mess and everything was supposed to be perfection and it didn't become perfection, live as a delivered person who's under a perfect God. We are not perfect people. I know that, but luckily he is sanctifying us by working from the inside out. And we have hope in Christ because of what he did on our cross and what he did through the resurrection. So let's celebrate that. Let's celebrate that he sits on the mercy seat. I'm going to invite the worship team up here. I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to collapse things all over. Father God, thank you that you've delivered us out of a life of sin, out of a life that quite honestly was slavery. Now that's not to equate anything that's gone on in our generations. There's been some horrific things, but God, sin corrupted us and kept us from the goodness of God, from the holiness of God, the purifying holiness of God. So God, you are holy thank you that you are holy and that even though you're holy, you've decided to dwell among us and call us your people. And so all we have to do, to do is worship and thank you. And so we worship now. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty.